welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. My Trusty Traveler's Companion, published by the Railway Board of India in 1911, says that the Ajanta Caves are 38 miles from the nearest railway station and well worthy of a visit. Rereading the instructions, pony chakras and bullet carts can be obtained. I'm embarrassed to think how much I complained about the road from Aurangabad, north, 60 miles to the caves. It was being rebuilt and seemed to be all washboards and cobbles. I was staying in Aurangabad, a name that translates as the city of Aurangzeb. He, Aurangzeb, was the last of the great Mughals, men famous for building some of the world's grandest tombs, including the Taj Mahal. And Aurangzeb himself ruled India for almost 50 years at the height of Mughal power. Contrary to precedent, he ordered his own burial in an unmarked patch of bare ground next to the man he called his teacher. The grave is at Kuldabad, about 15 miles northwest of Aurangabad, and it's so plain that it distressed Lord Curzon. Punctilious about the deference due to India's ruler, Curzon, who was viceroy at the time, asked the local prince in the Zam of Hyderabad to enclose the grave with a set of perforated marble screens, jollies. They're still there. Aurangzeb doesn't object, and neither do the pious Muslims who come by to offer a prayer. A blind attendant was reciting a text for their benefit when I arrived, I didn't say anything, but someone must have told him he had a foreigner, because he switched to English and stopped to ask, Do you understand? I said I did, but I was actually thinking about the letters that Aurangzeb in his late 80s wrote to his sons. About a century later, Warren Hastings of the East India Company obtained a translation. Here's an extract, published in 1786. I came a stranger into this world, and a stranger I depart. I know nothing of myself, what I am, and for what I am destined. Amazing! The last of the great Mughals had existentialist moments. I don't know if he knew the Jataka of the six-tusked elephant, but I am sure Aurangzeb would have batted me away if I had asked him to join me on a quick visit to Aurangabad's Prozone Mall. When it opened in 2010, it was India's biggest shopping center. The Fiat and Jeep showrooms seemed out of place to me, but otherwise the place was familiar, with two floors on a square plan. There was an H&M from Sweden and a Marks & Spencer from England. Stores advertised Crocs, Batas, Adidas, and Levi's. Posters said, Life begins here. I could tell Aurangzeb that the Prozone Mall is part of an economic and cultural change bigger than the Muslim invasions, bigger than the Pax Britannica, bigger even than independence. Those events barely changed the lives of most Indians, while the dream of the Prozone life has changed the life of almost every Indian. I imagine Aurangzeb turning away in disgust. So too the Buddha. So, of course, Gandhi. Not that their opinions matter much anymore. I'm reminded of a fortune teller who years ago came into a Delhi coffee shop one morning about four o'clock. There were no other customers, and so he read the waiter's palms. He asked if I'd like him to read mine, but superstitiously I declined. 
I later asked one of the waiters what he had learned. He said, I will be prosperous, sir. Do you believe him, I asked? Not at all, sir. He is just for entertainment. I make my own future. So much for the mystic East. I flew from Aurangabad to Mumbai, whose new and flashy airport brilliantly signals India's rush to the pro-zone life. The next morning I rented a bicycle. This wasn't quite as crazy as it sounds even to me, and I rode south maybe two miles to the tip of Kolaba. This is the southernmost point on the chain of islands that were gradually linked by the British to form the peninsula that is the historic center of Mumbai. The northern half of Kolaba is intensely crowded, but once under the road-spanning sign that reads, Welcome to Kolaba Military Station, the view is mostly of walls and guarded entrances. Maybe someday the Indian military will concede that such locations have lost their strategic value, but I won't hold my breath. Part of the reason for my skepticism is that almost at the tip of the peninsula there's a waterfront club for military personnel. It's reputedly very nice, and certainly very off-limits, I couldn't even peek inside to look for drinks served on relic salvers from the Raj. Who carried the salvers? I think I know the answer because, as I cased out the premises, I passed a tiny patch of non-military buildings behind a broken-down stone wall. These houses were of brick, two stories under corrugated metal roofs. They shared common walls, but each was painted in a different color, white, gray, blue, yellow. Colorful clothing was drying along the eaves. The men who lived in these houses, I submit, worked at the military club, but the dusty forecourt was occupied right now by women, kids, and plastic tubs stacked up next to potted plants. Satellite dishes were bolted onto the roofs. The people using them knew about the prozone life. The main tourist attraction in Kolaba is the Afghan church, built mostly to recall the loss of 4,500 British troops in the disastrous retreat from Kabul in 1842, an inscription in the apse recalls those who fell, mindful of their duty, by sickness and by the sword, in the campaigns of Sindh and Afghanistan, A.D. 1838 to 1843. An inscription at the other end of the church recalls the Second Afghan War, which ended in 1880, with a better result for the British government, but not for the officers whose names are recorded on the wall or for the enlisted men whose names are not. There were no other visitors at the church, which is a little odd because a mile and a half to the north there are crowds throughout the day at the Gateway of India. You'd think this Jim Crack imitation of a Roman triumphal arch would have been torn down as a hated symbol of Britain's King Emperor, but no... The arch, built about 1920 of concrete with a stone veneer, is famous for being famous. It's Mumbai's biggest celebrity. For proof, look around the corner where there's a Starbucks. There's another Starbucks about a kilometer to the north at Horniman Circle, a small but popular public garden. Four identical office buildings from the 1860s wrap the circle. Each building is divided by a narrow passage into halves. Each half has three main floors set back behind arcades. The arches on the ground floor are heavily rusticated. Those above have the same dimensions but are smoother. 
The keystones on the ground floor arches carry bosses with identical heads, Neptune perhaps, complete with shaggy beards, caps that look like leafy salads, and brow ridges like Neanderthals. One floor higher, the keystones have identical female heads with impossibly sad expressions, as though fresh off the guillotine. The arcades at the ground level provide shade for pedestrians. On the upper floors, they were designed to provide a space for workers to step outside for a bit of air. There's a fourth floor, too, but its porch lacks the arcade and instead has a simple roof of corrugated metal sheets supported on iron poles. I'm describing the buildings as they appear in a photograph from the 1870s. The photograph also shows Horniman Circle looking like a forest. The wide street circling the garden is completely deserted except for one horse, carriage, and a groom or sice. A picture I took of the buildings about 1990 shows the ground floor arcades plastered with signboards. The biggest is a Coca-Cola sign, and there is an assortment of smaller signs for coffee shops and industrial V-belts. It's visual cacophony, no patch of wall left bare, and the arcades on the upper floors have all been enclosed to create more office space. Some shutters in the enclosed arcades are open. Some are closed, and some are blocked by window unit air conditioners. The buildings are badly stained by the weather. Weeds are growing out of cracks in the facade, and the building has become a parking lot, with pedestrians forced into the street. Thirty years later, in 2019, the invasive plants were gone. So was the stain. So were the window unit air conditioners, except at the top floor. The tenants had changed, too. Hermes and Louboutin, purveyors of the prozone life, had shops on the ground floor. Upstairs now belonged to big institutional tenants, including the State Bank of India. The traffic on the street was worse than ever. Starbucks is just west of Horniman Circle. It's on the ground floor of the Elphinstone Building, a grand heap in Venetian Gothic with interlaced arches. I sneaked past the guards and nonchalantly climbed to the fourth floor in hopes of a view from the top. No luck. All the arcades had been converted to office space up here, too. The Elphinstone Building's owner is Tata, the Indian conglomerate, and it was here that Tata, in 2012 began its India-wide partnership with Starbucks. Howard Schultz, then the CEO of Starbucks, came to the store's grand opening and called it perhaps the most elegant, beautiful, dynamic store we've opened in our history. Certainly, this Starbucks was big, and the designers were smart enough to emphasize the elephantine timbers supporting the building's upper floors. Schultz's remarks were distributed globally and appeared on CBS News in the United States. They appeared in the UK's Telegraph and in the small but loyal Times Colonist in Victoria, British Columbia. Heritage tours of Mumbai may not always include Horniman Circle or the Elphinstone Building, but they always include the city's nearby railway station and the equally close-by clock tower of Bombay University. Like the Bombay Stock Exchange, the university has kept its old name. There are other heaps in the tour, almost all built during or soon after the American Civil War, which was the best war ever for the Indian cotton industry. Most of the buildings were built by British architects living in India, but the eminent and prolific George Gilbert Scott found time without ever leaving London to design Bombay University's clock tower. 
Guidebooks are less likely to point out the building that in the late 19th century was Watson's, Bombay's best hotel. I could give you the address, midway between the university clock tower and the railway station, but if you track it down, you'll think I made a mistake. The building has lost its name, is no longer a hotel, and is somewhere between a shambles and a ruin. The industrialist Jamshetji Tata, the same Tata whose descendants signed the partnership bringing Starbucks to India, is said to have been denied a room at Watson's on returning from a trip to England. As retribution, he is said, to have built the far grander Taj Mahal Hotel half a mile away. I visited that Taj on India's Republic Day in 2019 and found the lobby awash with handsome couples in suits and saris fit for a fashion show. The few foreigners in the lobby were letting down a side by wearing t-shirts and cargo pants. There were no elegant suits and saris at the former Watsons, now called Esplanade Mansion. The building had been built in a hurry in the 1860s with prefabricated ironwork sent from England. It had never been more than an iron-frame box, four stories above the ground floor, with exposed iron balconies and naked beams creating a sidewalk colonnade. The hotel closed in the 1960s, and the building was converted to lower-floor offices and upper-floor apartments. The building's owner still lived in it, but rent control laws dissuaded him from spending money on maintenance, and tenants refused to let the city do repairs despite the building's official designation as an endangered monument. Back in the 1990s, there had been signs pointing to high court advocates in Chamber 137 and Cabin Number 23. Other signs pointed to the Maharashtra Council of Indian Medicine, to accountants, estate agents, and sales agents for mysterious products. There was an electrical switchboard with dozens of meters and a jungle of wires. Thirty years later, in 2019, it was still there, and the place hadn't burned down. All of which brings me back to the four buildings on Horniman Circle, because, like Watson's, they show both the best and the worst of the British in India. The best because a set of four identical office buildings can be built faster and more cheaply than four different buildings. True, the Horniman Circle buildings were not built as cheaply as Watson's. Nobody really needs keystones with Greek gods. But the Horniman Circle Quartet like Watson's, embodies the practical rationality that gave India its telegraph lines, railways, and post office. The same dedication to efficiency gave India universities, research institutes, and scientific accomplishments, such as the discovery that the Anopheles mosquito is the malaria vector. Near Hyderabad, there used to be an old park bench honoring Ronald Ross, who figured that one out. A very great man, I recall it saying. It was only a few miles from one of India's nuclear research organizations. Yet, rationality implies measurement, lines, ranks, rows, grids. We're back to the standards and rules underlying Bankam Chandra Chatterjee's twin deities, comfort and respectability. Look at the four buildings at Horniman Circle. Are they comfortable and respectable? Sure, especially now that they've been cleaned up and retrofitted with air conditioning. Yet tell me they aren't as boring, as uniformly stultifying as those around Glasgow's Park Circus. 
When I went inside the Elphinstone building, the one with Starbucks, I found that the main staircase opened on a square air shaft. It wasn't big enough to be called a courtyard, but it was big enough for a peripheral walkway on each floor, with corridors leading to various offices. The space was spick and span, and freshly painted in cream, and a green like the flesh of an avocado, or of a hospital corridor that makes you queasy. Thinking of the air shaft and the busy offices around it reminds me of Gustav Mahler on his deathbed. His last words are reported to have been, so many notes. Mahler might have meant that there were another ten symphonies on the way, but I doubt it. I think he was echoing that most famous phrase from Ecclesiastes. So many notes, so many bundles of office files wrapped up in red tape, so many ways to waste time in this vanity and that vanity, and so little time to figure out what we really want. Think I'm just being too damn negative? Maybe I should cheer up with a little visit to Calcutta. My 1962 Pan American World Airways Guide describes Calcutta as the commercial metropolis of modern India. But even then, in 1962, the airline had dropped the city from its network. British Air, which continued flying to Calcutta longer than any other European airline, gave up in 2009. A local travel agent called that event a disaster for aviation in the East. In 2019, you could fly out of Mumbai on BA, KLM, Lufthansa, Swiss, United, and Delta. None of them bothered with Calcutta. Struggling to stay afloat, the leaders of West Bengal decided that it would be smart to change some place names. So, Calcutta became Kolkata, while Dalhousie Square, named for the man who had brought the telegraph and railways to India, became B.B. Dibag. The three letters come from the three men, Benoy Basu, Badal Gupta, and Dinesh Gupta, who in 1930 assassinated Norman Simpson, a medical doctor serving as Bengal's Inspector General of Prisons. He was working in his office in the Writers' Building, the nerve center of the Bengal government, and still today overlooking the square. One of Simpson's killers died on the spot. The second was wounded and died in hospital. The third was hanged the next year. The judge who sentenced that third assassin was himself assassinated in his own courtroom, and his assassin was shot dead on the spot. Trees make it impossible to get a picture of the entire facade of the writer's building. You can't just stroll inside either, but where can you do that anywhere nowadays? The cornice carries an assortment of sculptures badly stained by the weather. One is a woman identified as Justice. She sits on a throne and is flanked by two men, one English and the other Indian. Implacable, she seems unaware that her left hand has fallen off. A ten-minute walk away, there's the High Court, a fine example of Victorian Gothic architecture. Nearby, there's Metcalf Hall, more or less copied from the Erechtheon, next to the Parthenon. And just east of the High Court, there's Raj Bhavan, or Government House, once the home of the East India Company's Governor-General, and later the home of the Viceroys, until the British moved their capital to New Delhi. It's a modified version of Kedliston Hall, the ancestral home of the Curzon family, and I suppose it amused George Curzon to find that he knew his way around even before he stepped inside. All these buildings are outgunned by the Victoria Memorial, opened 20 years after Victoria's death. Built on a scale to surpass the Taj Mahal, the building is roughly 300 feet square and has corner towers, 
grand entrances north and south, and curved colonnades east and west. A monumental rotunda houses the marble statue of a young Victoria. 200 feet north of the building and in an extensive park, there's a bronze of the queen in stolid maturity. 200 feet south of the building, but still in the park, there's a statue of an unrealistically beautiful Curzon. It was he, ever mindful of prestige, who pushed for the creation of the memorial. On another day, he ordered the restoration of the Taj Mahal, and of course, he requested the jollies or carved screens wrapping the grave of Aurangzeb. On holidays, thousands of Indians crowd into the Victoria Memorial. Many climb up a spiral staircase to the drum of the dome from which they can gaze down at the statue of the young Victoria. It's a strange thing to see, given India's intense pride in its bloody fight for independence. You could argue that the crowds come to see another monument famous like Mumbai's Gateway of India for being famous. But if I look for the germ of the thing, I come to this. The crowds come to gaze at a woman who lived the prose own life. True, she didn't know about Starbucks, which has a shop about half a mile from here at the Forum Mall, but she had so much else. It's the flip side to the story of the six-tusked elephant. Instead of finding happiness by focusing on your heart's desire, happiness is imagining buying all your heart's desires, plural. Happiness is having the things you're taught to want.